So I'm going to ask you this morning to take your Bibles, please, and turn to Isaiah chapter 53. We will pick up a few verses at the end of 52, but we'll focus mostly on chapter 53 today as we come to our what for, for us is going to be our last message in Isaiah. There's much more to this book, and I would just um, encourage you to explore that on your own. There's so much that we haven't had time to dig into as we continue our Unravel series, studying through the whole Bible. So many incredible passages, Isaiah chapter 7, um, Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, goodness, there's, there's a lot that we just have not been able to, to dig into but I purposely want to end our time in Isaiah today on this chapter because this is, I think, the pinnacle chapter in the entire book uh, of Isaiah. And we're familiar with this. We are so familiar with some of these verses that, honestly, if we're not careful, we could sleep our way through hearing them again for the hundredth or thousandth time. Um, I pray that God will jar us this morning and open our ears to hear this in a way that perhaps we never have. You know, the world of job hunting today is very different than it was when most of us were younger. We used to have to type up resumes and get in our car and actually drive across town and put a suit on and go into a building and get all nervous and, you know, walk in and sit down for an interview. Now, nobody does that. Uh, it's, it's all done from your pajamas at two in the morning, from your house. Uh, everything's done online. And um, I suppose there's some benefit to that. Now, I've run into some odd job descriptions in my time and looking through things, and I'm sure you have as well. But I want to share with you a, a fictitious job description uh, real quick as we get started just to hear how completely absurd this is. And I promise you this will tie into what we're talking about today. Imagine you're at home, you're on monster.com or indeed whatever, and um, you're looking for work and you come across a job description that says this, looking for an employee to start out beneath the lowest employee in the company. All of your ideas will be ridiculed. Everything you say will be considered to be a lie. No one will associate with you or find you appealing. You will eat lunch alone. Everyone will despise you and reject you. You will not be admired or respected by anyone. Your role in this organization will bring you dejection, grief, and sorrow. You will take the hurts and problems of every employee upon yourself. You will be blamed for the failures of every person in the organization, and you will personally bear the consequences for all their wrongdoing. Those very people will turn on you. They will physically attack you and beat you so violently that you will barely be recognizable as a person. You will then be charged and sentenced for the wrongdoing of every person around you, but you cannot speak a word in your own defense. You will then be executed for the crimes of others, even though you are innocent yourself. It's absurd, isn't it? It's silly and laughable and foolish. No one would sign up for that. No one would ever write a job description like that. However, there is someone who answered a job description exactly like that. We're going to take a few minutes this morning to look at that one and what all of this meant in his life as he came. Today we come to, as I said, what is probably, I mean, I hate to say things like this because then you're always excluding something else, but really, if... if I think if I had to tear out one chapter in the Bible, and that's all I could keep for the rest of my life, it would probably be Isaiah chapter 53. Um, nowhere in the Old Testament or the New Testament, nowhere 
are the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ explained and revealed more powerfully, more movingly, more clearly than they are here in Isaiah chapter 53. This chapter is the gospel in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, to help us once again kind of connect the dots between the Old and the New Testament, it was this very passage that we're going to look into today that Philip read to the man from Ethiopia as he was riding in his chariot, reading the scriptures, he was reading what we know as Isaiah 53. And God sent Philip along. Philip read these verses to him and explained to him what they meant. And the man from Ethiopia was saved from the Old Testament. And it was this passage right here. And I will tell you, I, um, I come to this chapter today with awe and reverence and a healthy dose of fear. Uh, I am fully aware that I am incapable of doing justice to this, and so I am fully reliant on the Holy Spirit to reveal to you through these verses what I am woefully incapable of revealing. Let me remind you quickly just some of the context of these words. We've been going through some of this as we've looked at previous chapters of Isaiah already, as we've looked at some of the other prophets who ministered during the time of Isaiah. Isaiah is proclaiming this prophecy to people whose nation had been ravaged by war and whose lives had been ravaged by their own sin. They are living in a time of horrible darkness, spiritually and physically. They were, the people down in Judah were, as I said last week or the week before, they were just listening to the clock tick, waiting for Assyria to come and obliterate them. It was just a matter of time. As it turns out, ironically, we'll see uh, in the weeks to come that God turned the tables there and sent someone to obliterate Assyria, and ironically, it was actually Babylon who ended up coming and uh, attacking and destroying Judah. But these people now are, they're longing for a savior who would come. They're longing for someone to come who could come and conquer their enemies, to free them from the, the grip of terror that they lived in every day, and someone who could come and redeem them from the bondage of their sin, even though that's not what they wanted. They wanted the relief from the consequences and the judgment of God that had come upon them. And they wanted someone to come and do this. And, and, and in their minds, and I mean, it would have been the same with us, in their minds, as they pictured this Savior who had been promised their entire lives, it had been, this had been passed down generation to generation, God's promise of a coming Messiah. In their minds, they pictured a superhero with a chiseled jaw and bulging muscles riding in on a huge white stallion with his sword gleaming in the sun. They, they pictured someone like that coming in who could overthrow their enemy and bring them political freedom. But the description that Isaiah gives them in this chapter is like a slap in the face. You and I struggle to appreciate and understand the shock that this must have been to them. We've heard this a thousand times. We have the privilege of looking back on the Messiah's first coming and seeing all the events and seeing all the fulfilled prophecy. This was 700 years before Christ came, they had none of what we have. And so Isaiah's words came to them, not bringing relief and comfort to them, but jolting them, absolutely shocking their senses as they heard this prophecy unfold from his lips. It takes them completely by surprise, and it leaves them wondering if any of this could possibly even be true. 
Oh, Isaiah begins this prophecy with exactly what they wanted to hear. The prophecy that we're going to look at starts actually in chapter 52, verse 13. So if you turn there, we'll pick up the first verse. This is one of those sections where, and please don't mishear what I'm saying, this is one of those sections where they got the chapter and verse divisions completely wrong. Okay, unfortunately, it's a very helpful thing. I'm not saying the Bible is not inspired, so don't hear that I'm saying that. Um, None of these chapter-verse divisions were in there until hundreds of years after the original writings. They are a great help, but I just don't understand some of the the divisions here. Um, But if I had done it, it would have been a bigger mess than it is uh, already. Um, These chapter-verse divisions have nothing to do with the inspiration of the Bible, just like the little subheadings have nothing to do with it. They are editor's helps. They are certainly helpful tools for the most part. But really, chapter 52, verse 13 should be chapter 53, verse 1. So Isaiah begins uh, saying exactly what the people were hoping to hear. He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Boy, that's what they were picturing now. They were picturing a mighty, valiant warrior coming in to save the day, someone who was exalted, who was high and lifted up, but immediately in the next breath, Things take an unexpected turn for the listener. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you. That word astonished there can be interpreted shocked or stunned or even appalled. Just as many were shocked and stunned and appalled and astonished at you, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the son's of men. Isaiah begins peeling back the layers and saying to them, this coming Messiah is not going to look anything like what you picture him to look. He's not going to be at all what you are expecting. In fact, verse 15 says that even kings will be left speechless by him when they see this coming king, and they hear what he has to say. They're going to be left absolutely speechless. Think for just a moment of all the incredible miracles and displays of power that the Israelites and their ancestors had already seen God do. The mighty works that he's performed, we've looked at so many of them already in our studies. So, Surely the Messiah that this great God is going to send is going to be just as impressive. He's going to come on the scene and wow the people with things greater than the parting of the Red Sea. Fire is going to come down from heaven. I mean, everybody is going to be able to look at this Messiah and know who he is. Isaiah says, no, that's not how it's going to be at all. This Messiah is going to come lowly and humble, twisted and deformed, as it were, in your image of him. He's not going to be anything like what you expect. And you see, this this problem still exists today. People have in their mind, and I would even submit to you many people sitting in church pews this very morning, have in their mind a picture of, of the God that they want to serve. They've made up in their mind the type of God that they're willing to obey and follow. And so when they hear some things from the scriptures, uh, they suddenly turn a deaf ear because the Bible's portrayal of God does not match the one that they're willing to serve. It does not match the one that they're willing to sacrifice for. When Christ comes along and says, you must give up everything to be my disciple, they say, hmm, yeah, that's not the kind of savior I want. And we see this rampant in Hollywood. Of course, what what don't we see rampant there? Uh, 
So many of these people have come out over the years, like Sarah Michelle Geller years ago is one that for some reason sticks out in my mind where she was being interviewed and said, um, uh, the question was asked, you know, what, what kind of religion do you follow? And she said, well, I've sort of made up my own. I've taken a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Hinduism and a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of Christianity, and I've sort of, you know, blended them all together to, to, uh, to make my own religion. This is what people do. And this is exactly what the people in Isaiah's day were doing, God's people. They were so far adrift from where God wanted them to be that they were not in tune with God's word at all at this point. Isaiah begins revealing to them that the way this Savior is going to appear is going to leave everyone dumbfounded. It's going to leave kings speechless. They're not going to be able to believe that he's really the promised one. They will look at him and say, no chance, no, no way that's him. Chapter 53, verse 1, he says, who has believed our report or our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord throughout Scripture is a picture of God's mighty power and strength. When the arm of the Lord moves, let me tell you, things happen. And Isaiah is saying, even though this one coming is going to be coming in the power and might and strength of the Lord, people are not going to believe the report. People will be shocked at the lowliness and the meekness and the ordinariness. Is that a word? Is that, uh, you don't know? Okay, well, I don't know either. I think, I think it is. The ordinariness of his coming. They simply will not believe that this one could possibly have been sent by the strong arm of the Lord. May I remind you back in Isaiah chapter 6, the last part of Isaiah 6, right after God said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, gave him a quick explanation of what his ministry for the rest of his life was going to look like. Oh, Isaiah, you're going to be carried around on people's shoulders. They're going to love you. Oh, no. He said, um, Isaiah, here's the thing. You're going to preach for me for the rest of your life, but no one is going to listen to you. No one is going to believe what you say. As a matter of fact, your preaching is going to harden their hearts even more. It's going to make them more deaf to my word than they ever were before. And so poor Isaiah now, at this point in his ministry, he's been used to the cold shoulders. He's been used to the deaf ears, the dead hearts. And he comes to something like this, a prophecy like he's about to give here. He says, who has believed our report? Who, who's going to take this seriously? And he's absolutely right. Even today, you and I, in our so-called civilized world, we share the message of Christ with some people, and they smirk and look at us and walk away like, wow, what a loon. you got to be crazy to believe that. And some of the people who've said that to me over time, I, I love to say to them, what you got that's better? I'd love to hear it. Tell me what you have. Who's going to believe our report? It doesn't stop there. Isaiah reveals even more shocking things about this coming Savior. And I'm telling you, they were not ready to hear it. And I still struggle today to get through this chapter. Verse 2. For he shall grow up before him. That's before God as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or majesty. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
the Messiah, the one sent to accomplish the greatest mission in the history of the world, is described here in unthinkable terms. First of all, he's described as a tender shoot. Now, this ties into what we looked at last week about the stump where God had cut down everything and there was nothing but stumps left, but he said, I'm not finished. I'm not finished with these rebellious people. I'm still going to rescue them. I'm still going to give them hope and still be their God. And from that dead stump came a tender shoot that we saw. And that shoot is the promised Messiah. Isaiah is saying here he's going to come as a tender plant. What is the picture of a tender plant? It's something small and fragile and weak and unthreatening. A tender shoot? Why, we, we walk across the grass on any given day and step on tender shoots and they bend and they break and we never pause to think about it. Is there anything more unthreatening than a tender little shoot coming up out of the ground? Isaiah then describes him as a root out of dry ground, a root in dry ground. Now, you know me. I'm a farmer. I'm a gardener. I'm a man of the soil. (laughs) But even I know that there's something very wrong with this description, a root in dry ground. What chance does a root in dry ground have to ever become anything but a dead root. And Isaiah here, God through Isaiah, is he's stacking the odds against this coming Messiah is what he's doing. He's saying you must understand he's coming against all odds. He's coming in lowliness, meekness. He's making himself nothing. He's going to appear to the world not as a valiant savior who everyone could look at and go, well, sure, but rather... The world is going to see him as a root in dry ground. He's nothing. There's no potential for anything there. But it gets worse. He says he has no form or attractiveness. The word is, well, attractiveness or comeliness or majesty about him. When we see this Savior, we're going to have to turn and go, wait a second, did you say it's him? Look, you mean the guy behind him? It can't be him. No, it's him. That one. Well, I wouldn't give him a second look. Never mind stake my life in him. That one. He has no beauty. I mean, let's just come right out and say it, Isaiah. Don't hold your punches here. No beauty. He will be seen as undesirable. Not the kind of person that the cliques in school would invite to come and be a part of their group. He would be the one who would be pushed to the side, ignored, laughed at, made fun of. You know, that one in school, you think back to school, that that one who everybody made fun of who now is a billionaire? That one, yeah. But it gets worse. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not Esteem him. Imagine this, the promised one, the one that these people have been waiting generations for. Isaiah now bursts onto the scene and says, folks, what God has sent me to tell you is that this promised one you've been waiting for, the one who is the answer to all your hopes and prayers, he's going to be despised and rejected by the very ones he came to to save. He's going to be a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. People are going to turn away from him. This phrase um, 
we hid, as it were, our faces from him. I, I, I love this old language that it, that it uses here. It, it's a picture of, of seeing something so off-putting, seeing something so grotesque that you sort of turn your little children's faces in towards you and you walk the other way. It's this picture of, no, 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 honey, no, don't, don't look at that. You'll have nightmares. Don't look at that. This is why I told you last week, take all the paintings that you have of Jesus and throw them in the trash. They're all wrong. This perfect, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, where in the world did they ever get that from to begin with? You know, standing like this <laughs> with a halo around his head. That's not how the Bible describes him. A man of sorrow. Acquainted with grief. Nothing about him that was appealing. So much the opposite that we hid our faces. We turned our heads away from him and didn't want to look. No one will esteem him. This is not a word we use in common language. The word esteemed means respected and admired. About the only time you may ever hear a phrase like that is if someone says, oh, you know, so-and-so is highly esteemed by his classmates or she's highly esteemed by her colleagues. It means that other people look up to her, they respect her, they admire her. Isaiah says, when we look at him, we will not admire him at all. We will not respect him. We will not hold him in high regard. There will be nothing about him that will appeal to our flesh. How gut-wrenching to read these words. I mean, we're only three verses into Isaiah chapter 53, and already my stomach is in a knot. I told Jaron and Rachel, uh, you know, as we think ahead through these services and try to put them together, I said, I, I don't even know where to go with this. I don't know what to say. I'm so overwhelmed by this text. We're three verses in, and I have a lump in my throat. These are horrific words. Jesus will be despised and rejected and hated and mocked by the very ones he came to save. How is that possible? The New Testament writers pick up on this. John said in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Imagine the feeling of that. Imagine coming home from a hard day's work and the door is locked and you go, well, that's odd. You, you ring the doorbell, you knock on the door, you look through the window and your wife and family are in there and they're saying, go away. Go away. You're not welcome here anymore. We don't want you anymore. Multiply that times a trillion trillion and maybe we will begin to understand a fraction of how Christ felt when he came home to the world that he had created, to the very people whom he had created, and they said to him, buzz off, go away. You're not the one we want. They wanted someone to come and save them from the Romans not someone to come and save them from their sin. They were quite happy in their sin. They just wanted a political leader who would come and take the boot of the Romans off of their neck so that they could continue to live their lives however they wanted. And isn't that, honestly, most of the time, isn't that what you and I want as well? Oh, we don't have problems with Romans today. Rome is nothing now on the world stage but we've got our own Romans, don't we? Oh God, if you would just come and solve this problem for me this week, that'd be great. If you could do that, that'd be great. Yes, well, I would, my child, I'd love to do that, but 
You're living in rebellion in this area. Can we talk about this first? Nope. Nope. That's my life. You come and deal with my problems, and then we'll see. Nothing much has changed. But I have to ask, why Why did Jesus come this way? Was it necessary? Could he not have come the first time like he's going to come the second time? Bursting through the clouds with trumpets blaring, with a flash of light putting fear into the hearts of everyone. Why not come that way? I mean, Jesus was the one seated at the right hand of God before he ever came to earth. He was seated at the right hand of God. The Bible tells us he didn't have to try to be equal with God. It was not something that he craved for or fought for. He was equal with God. He was the one through whom the universe was made. He was the one by whom all things are held together. That same Jesus humbled himself and became nothing. Because you see, folks, if you've read any of the Bible at all, you know that's how God does things. It's a recurring pattern throughout Scripture. God takes the lowly, the weak, the the broken, the overlooked, and he showcases his power and his wisdom through them. And you and I should take tremendous hope in that. Because you and I are the very ones I just described. The weak, the pathetic, the broken, the useless. God does the same thing with us. How often, if we're honest, how often do we catch ourselves looking at the, the meagerness of our own lives, our feeble attempts to serve God, our our faltering faith, our stammering little prayers. And we think, what could God possibly accomplish through someone like me? Is there a day that we ever get through without being pricked in our conscience about our sin? Is there ever a day? And we look in the mirror at this creature and we say, how in the world... Could God ever do anything through that? Well, I want to tell you, this is how God works. And I want to encourage you with some scripture from the New Testament this morning. I normally don't read passages this long. And I'm telling you, this week I must have come back to this 20 times and tried and tried and tried to cut verses out to save time. And I could not do it. (laughs) I could not do it on this passage. You have to hear all of this. Listen to how God operates, and it's still how he operates in your life today. Take hope from this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Listen to these words. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It still is today. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. God asks, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But 
to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Now listen, here's where he really drives it home to us. Verse 26, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Listen to this. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who glories or him who boasts, boast in the Lord. I take such great comfort in those words. These are verses that have been precious to me for years. As I look at my own life and I'm I'm absolutely speechless that God would, would be able to do anything through me. And I realize, well, why wouldn't he? It has nothing to do with you, Phil. It's all about him. I've had, it just happened just recently. I, I have Sundays, last one in particular. I left here last Sunday so discouraged, so just completely flat, I thought, what in the world am I doing this for? That was a train wreck today. Nothing good could have come from that. And then you hear someone say, man, God really spoke to me through that. And I'm like, huh? Through that? Like I was so lost last week. I, I could not string two words together. And it's a reminder, Phil, dude, chill out. It ain't about you at all. Just be faithful to what I've asked you to do. Keep your pride low and let me do my work. I'm looking for messed up people, Phil, and you're at the head of the line. Congratulations. History itself would be forever changed. And Christ would be forever exalted by his coming into the world. But first he had to endure this humiliation and suffering. Do you remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus? We looked at this on I don't know, Easter, maybe, some, somewhere around there. And he was talking to the two disciples. And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them from the scriptures concerning himself as to why the Messiah must suffer all these things and then enter into his glory. That middle part is what we miss. We forget Christ had to come this way. He had to suffer these things. Because now we have a Savior. We have a great high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He doesn't stand a billion miles away and go, hey, I hope that gets better for you, man. I don't know what that feels like, but good luck with that one. We have a Savior in heaven right now who chose to keep the scars of the cross for all eternity. He had to come this way. He had to be humbled. He had to be broken. He had to be murdered. That way, no one in all of history can stand in heaven one day and point a finger at God and say, you don't know how hard my life was. I would have followed you. I would have believed in you. I would have given my life to you, but you have no idea how I suffered. He says, really? Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him 
stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded. Boy, I tell you, I just, please try to hear this. We, we can quote this in our sleep. Please try to hear this. He was wounded for our transgressions, for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. We must not and, and cannot miss what these verses are showing us, that we were the cause of his suffering. We were, you were, I was. It was our sin that brought God's condemnation upon Christ. It was our sin that brought the agony of the cross upon him. It was our sin that caused him to suffer and die. And listen, if the Bible hadn't revealed this to us, I struggled, as I said, I struggle every time I come to this chapter. I want to skip it sometimes because it hurts so much to read this, to know that I did this to him. There's no way around it. There's no loophole. We can't get out of this. We did this to him. You think you're a better person than most people? Because you don't do drugs, you don't sleep around, you don't cheat on your taxes. You think you're, I'm going to tell you what, you're as rotten as the worst sinner in the world. Your sin sent him to the cross. Yes, you, sweet little southern lady, you, you sent him to the cross. And so did I. And although this is hard to read, if the Bible had not revealed this to us, how could we ever claim to be forgiven? How could we ever think that we could earn our way to God? How could we ever think that we could surpass what Christ endured for us and gain a place in heaven? How could we ever sing songs such as, for God the just is satisfied to look at Christ and pardon me? Me? The wicked? The filthy? The unrighteous, the hater of God, the lover of self, me. God is just to look at his son and pardon me. It would be the height of arrogance. It would be the height of blasphemy for us to claim such a thing if the word of God had not revealed how it happened. It was because he humbled himself. It was because he submitted himself to the hand of the creatures he made that you and I can claim forgiveness. Verse 6, the case continues to worsen against us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Anyone who has ever tended sheep will tell you that sheep have a remarkable ability to find a hole in the fence of the sheep pen and escape, but they possess no ability whatsoever to find that hole again to come back into the safety of the fold. Sheep will die without a shepherd. They cannot survive on their own, and yet they constantly try to break free from the watchful eye of the shepherd. It's little wonder that the Bible compares us to sheep. And if you look at verse 6 again, Isaiah says this in no uncertain terms. All we like, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No one escapes from that. And yet, despite our waywardness, despite the fact that we constantly strive to run from his watchful care, God in his great love and mercy has laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. Mine, mine, was the transgression, the poet said, but thine, the deadly pain. And how did Christ respond to all this? Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We, we must understand Jesus had the power to destroy everyone who was torturing him and mocking him and spitting on him and beating the crown of thorns into his head and ripping the beard from his face with one syllable. He could have silenced them all. And yet he chose to remain silent. He chose you and me over himself. And that is the very definition of love. What language shall I borrow to thank thee, dearest friend, for this, thy dying sorrow, thy mercy without end? Verses 9 and 10 says that simply describing how he would die, he made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified between two criminals. But with the rich at his death, what a prophecy this is. 700 years before, he died with criminals, yet he was buried in a rich man's borrowed tomb. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. What language is this? It pleased the Father to bruise him, to crush him even though he did no violence, even though no deceit was in his mouth, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Listen, the physical sufferings of the cross alone were more than any man could bear. Jesus endured all of that, but in addition, he bore the rod of God's wrath for the sins of the whole world. Blow after blow after blow. He felt the sting of punishment for your sins and for mine. So horrific was this suffering that creation itself turned away. The sun refused to shine. How could all of this possibly have pleased God? This doesn't mean that God was pleased with the suffering of his son, but rather that God was pleased with what the suffering of his son would accomplish. The fruit of his son's suffering would be the justification of many sinners and the glorification of his son for all eternity. We see this in the last two verses, verse 11 and 12. He shall see the anguish, God shall see the anguish of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. What remarkable verses these are. We've literally just scratched the surface of this today. But what gripping truths this contains. Listen, you and I could spend all eternity traveling to the farthest star in the universe to see the glories of Christ in his creation. But his glory can never be seen clearer than when we look upon the scars in his hands and his feet and his side and ask, what love is this? If you're saved, then you stand righteous before God today only because Christ went to the cross in your place. The songwriter got it right, and I close with this. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we 
spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement? Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we thank you for the willing sacrifice of your Son. We fall so short at trying to understand and express this. But Lord, I pray that your Spirit would illumine your word to us today in a fresh way. That we may see and bear with new weight the beauties and the agony of this chapter. Lord, it's beyond our comprehension and too much to take in to try to understand the shame and the suffering and the scoffing, the agony, the rejection, the mocking, the beatings that your son endured so that we would never have to face the wrath of God. That he took our sin upon himself and took the punishment as though he had committed it. What love is this? Lord, if there's someone here today who does not know where they are in relation to your son, save their soul this morning. Who could ever walk away from such a Savior, from such an invitation? May we spend the rest of our lives expressing our gratitude to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.